This is episode 109 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled Union Activities and Essential Workers During a Pandemic. This episode is part of our series of episodes during the pandemic. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I'm really pleased to welcome a new guest to the show. John Logan is here to talk to us about labor organizing in the modern era, even uh, during a pandemic. I did an episode, it was episode 85, that was a quick history about labor unions, and I've been looking for an expert to come on the show to talk about labor organizing in the modern era. And I'm so pleased that I found one. John Logan is a professor and director of labor and employment relations at San Diego State University. Between 2000 and 2009, he taught in the School of Management at the London School of Economics and Political Science. He's published extensively on labor relations and employer opposition to unions in the United States and globally. So, John, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I'll just say I'm at San Francisco State, not San Diego State. Oh, I'm sorry. That, that's I'm, fine. I'm, I'm in San Diego, so yeah. I must have just substituted. No, it's very clearly here. It says San Francisco State. My apologies. Okay. So as I say, I did this introductory podcast that took us through the decline of typical labor unions for private companies, but the increase of unions for government employees. Right. So what do you see happening in this century with unionizing? Well, if you look at the national uh, figure, the national position, union membership has continued to decline slowly. Union density has continued to to decline slowly. But over the past 10 years, it, it has been a very slow decline. The rate of decline is nowhere near as fast as it was, say, in the 1980s, when it was really declining at a very rapid rate, and also in the first decade of the 21st century. So we've seen a very gradual decline in both private and public sector union membership over the past few years. Public sector membership, of course, it remains much, much higher than private sector membership. About a third of public sector workers are union members, whereas only about 6.2% oh, wow. of private sector workers are union members. But it's also important to stress that it varies a great deal according to where you are in the country. Mm. States like Hawaii, New York State, uh, Washington State, Alaska, you continue to have a much higher union membership levels than, than the rest of the country. California 
is lower than those four that I mentioned, but it's still significantly higher than the national average. Mm. And, and very importantly, California has a sort of bucked national trends, not just in the last couple of years, but really for the past 10 or 15 years, union membership in California has either been relatively stable or has even risen by a small amount. So now California has um, 2.5 million members. It has the highest single number of union members anywhere in the country. Only in New York State is the other state with over 2 million union members. So California, the density percentage of workers who are members of unions is in the top six or so, but the absolute number of union members is the highest. But as I say, you know, importantly, in the case of California, it's been relatively stable for a number of years now, and that sort of bucking national trends much more worrying from a labor perspective has been some of this traditional manufacturing blue-collar states in the Midwest, like Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, which have uh, had much bigger declines in the last few years, in addition to affecting uh, wages, working conditions, and the economy in those states that obviously has very important political repercussions as well. I think I remember reading that about Alaska and I was kind of surprised. So what are yeah. the type of what yeah, what are the type of workers in Alaska that are unionized? Well, so I mean I, I think Alaska is probably one that would add you out of the list I gave you, New York, Hawaii, Washington State. Alaska is the one that maybe because it's a red state and you think, oh, you know, I would never have predicted Alaska being up there. Alaska actually has a much higher proportion of public sector workers compared with most states. And so that's a major factor contributing to the, the higher than average union density in the state. But just, you know, historically, Alaska has always been, you know, amongst the top few in terms of union density. And, you know, it's certainly, I think, you know, politically, it's become more conservative. It's not, not so long ago where, you know, we would uh, have Democratic senators from Alaska and, you know, even Alaska going Democrat in the presidential elections. But Alaska is probably one that surprises people. You know, other states, which are now very red states, that you know, have traditionally have had quite high union membership, would include you know, states like um, West Virginia or Indiana. In both states, particularly in West Virginia, it's fallen quite a bit in recent years. I mean, you know, the mining industry in West Virginia, other previously heavily unionized sectors of the economy employ nowhere near as many workers as they used to. Indiana is also not amongst the top states, but you know, it has a significant manufacturing base still. And so both of those states maybe are a little bit higher in terms of the number of union members than people would predict. I mean, of course, the, the states, you know, there are huge parts of the country where union membership is very low. And, you know, that includes most of the South, uh, most of the Mountain West. For most of the post-war decades, even, you know, it has been that way in many of these states. Alabama and Mississippi are a bit higher than most of the rest of the South, again, because they have 
those major urban centers and you know, significant manufacturing parts of the economy that are more heavily unionized. So it is as I varies tremendously according to what part of the country we're talking about. And again, that, that's very noticeable with the public sector as well. You know, in states like um, New York and Rhode Island, you have over 70% of public sector workers being union members which contributes enormously to the overall picture in those states. In California, it's less than that, but it's still above 50%, I think it's around 54, 55% of public sector workers in California. And so again, that compares with the national average in the public sector, which is now around 33, 34%. So again, you know, whether we're talking public sector, there's huge variation, you know, depending on what part of the country we're talking about. Private sector, uh, there's you know le- less dramatic variation, but still it matters whether or not we're talking about the West Coast or you know the Northeast uh, versus say the South of the Mountain West. There's uh, huge differences. And what's the status of the big unions like the AFL-CIO? Are they growing or declining? Or what other kinds of unions are there out there? Yeah. So in general, they're declining. But, you know, the picture is a little bit more complicated. I mean, the AFL-CIO, of course, is the umbrella federation to which most of the country's big unions are affiliated. There are a few exceptions. The National Education Association, which is the biggest teachers union, of course, is not an affiliate of the AFL-CIO. I see. In 2005, we had a breakaway formation of a second federation called Change to Win. Oh, yeah. Which a, a number of big unions, you know, most notably the Service Employees International Union, SEIU, the Teamsters, and the UFCW joined uh, Change to Win. They broke off from the AFL CIO. UFCW have since rejoined the AFL CIO. The other two, SEIU and, and the Teamsters, are still outside of the AFL CIO. But, you know, more importantly is if you look at the big unions that, you know, either the ones are AFL affiliates or those are are not within the AFL, some um, have done much better than others Mm. over the past few years. It's a, a story which you're probably familiar with. I mean, again, the ones have been hardest hit tend to be, you know, the sort of traditional manufacturing unions mm-hmm. like the United Auto Workers Union or the Steel Workers Union, you know, some of the other manufacturing unions. And it's not because uh, former union members have decided not to be union members anymore or that you know, new workers you know, don't want to join. It's just, you know, we've had a huge decline in employment. You know, if you take the, the UAW as an example, it represents represents uh, the big three, you know, it represents GM, Ford, Chrysler, uh, but employment in those companies has declined very significantly over the past few decades. Now, employment in the auto sector overall is still high. Uh, it's not that employment in the sector overall has declined, but you know, it's partly uh, outsourcing of jobs where formerly new employees of the big three are now done in uh, non-union sectors in the auto parts plants. And also, uh, of course, you have the rise of um, 
the so-called foreign auto transplants companies like BMW, Volkswagen, Toyota, and others who have a very significant presence, mostly in the South. And those are all non-union, despite the fact the UAW has had has some very high-profile organizing campaigns in recent years. It's never been successful at organizing one of the big foreign uh, auto transplants. Interesting. It's declined for that reason. But other unions, say like um, SEIU and Unite Here in the hotel and hospitality industry, Mm. uh, have done better in terms of maintaining membership. And certainly the teachers' unions are still very strong Mm -hmm. and some of the other public sector unions. So it has been a mixed picture. And also, I mean, you you mentioned at the start, in terms of uh, seeing new organizing activity. So the reason the picture is somewhat complicated at the moment is if you look at the national picture and national political developments affect the labor movement, you can say, uh, you know, the position is quite bleak. You know, union membership in terms of density is as low as it's been you know, during the past century. It has tended to continue to fall year after year, although, as I said, in the last decade, you know, the decline has been very gradual. Mm. In terms of politics, you you have not just at the national level, we have a government that's now quite hostile to to unions, but very importantly, at the state level, you've seen since 2010, which started, of course, with Scott Walker, the governor of Wisconsin, uh, Republican governments, governors and legislatures at the state level that have been extremely hostile to unions, mm-hmm. particularly hostile to public sector unions. Oh. And that's you know, had an enormous toll, for example, like in your know, public sector union membership in states like uh, Wisconsin, and also in terms of passing right to work laws. Oh, yeah. Even in states that were considered to be union strongholds like Michigan, your know, union membership has declined uh, significantly in Michigan because of this more hostile political and legal environment at the state level. But at the same time as you've seen that, you've seen all of these sort of hopeful signs as well, which you know, are not enough to reverse the decline in terms of numbers. But, you know, in terms of labor activity, in terms of organizing activity, even in terms of strike activity, you know, there's a lot more going on in the last few years than we've seen for a very long time. Mm, Interesting. You know, you've seen a lot of organizing in certain sectors like online media and journalists. You know, journalists, of course, have been hit massively by the changes in the economy and technological changes over the past few decades. But you know, we've seen a lot of the new new media outlets uh, have unionized. Mm. You've seen now in you know, the last couple of years in particular, there's a lot of organizing activity or interest in organizing amongst groups that we've never seen any interest in unionization before. Mm. Tech workers, video game designers, th- those types of things. And also, as I said, you know, maybe starting with the West Virginia teachers uh, walkout in 2018, we've seen a significant upsurge in sort of strike activity, particularly amongst teachers, and you know, even you know, particularly amongst teachers in red states, you know, in states mm-hmm. like West Virginia, in Oklahoma, in Arizona. 
you know, in states that no one would have predicted, you know, a few years ago, you've had very large strikes or walkouts by teachers in those states protesting working conditions, protesting low wages, protesting funding for public schools at the state level. But that, I think, has also translated into giving unions a greater confidence in, in other sectors. You know, in the private sector, you know, we had the GM strike. We had the big strike amongst AT&T workers. We had the Marriott hotel workers strike mm-hmm. and so on. There's been a, a number of stop and shop, 30,000 grocery workers represented by the United Food and Commercial Workers in New England, you know, Southern California UFCW locals were threatening to strike if they did not get a better contract. So all over, you've seen a sort of upsurge in labor activity. Of course, this is, was before the you know the current pandemic, mm-hmm. uh, coronavirus crisis, and we were in an economy in which unemployment was very very low, and yet workers were not really seeing that sort of vibrant economy that the president always talks about being reflected in their paychecks and in the improvement in their working conditions. And as I said, you know, I think as a, partly as a result of the teacher walkouts, a number of unions had this sort of newfound confidence that they could strike or threaten to strike in order to get a better deal in terms of wages and benefits in their own contracts. And so both in 2018 and in 2019, uh, we saw strike figures that were you know, much higher than the last few years, so much higher than for many years. And the other thing, you know, in terms of pointing to hopeful signs, the Gallup polling that's done every year on public approval rates of unions was its highest ever, you know, since the Gallup poll has been asking this question. So I think 64%, I believe it was, of respondents in 2019 said they had a favorable view of unions. And that contrasted with actually the low uh, in the Gallup poll was actually not not so long ago, it was in 2009, Hmm. 48% of respondents said they had a positive view of unions. And so, you know, as I say, the overall national position is in some ways quite bleak, although, as I say, the rate of decline has certainly decelerated. It's been slower in recent years. But there are certainly uh, lots of signs of positive activity in terms of new organizing, in terms of activism amongst workers who are already union members and amongst public approval rates Mm -hmm. for unions. The problem is, as I said, that was during an economy in which unemployment was, you know, a lot of workers were not doing well for sure and were struggling and were living paycheck to paycheck. We all know that's the case. But still, you know, national unemployment figures were very low. You know, even if they don't account, you know, for people who have just dropped out of the labor market altogether, you know, have become discouraged and stopped looking for work and all of the other reasons that you know people might not show up in the national unemployment figures. Uh, there's no doubt that unemployment, the labor market has been very tight, and generally speaking, low unemployment is very good for unions. And it's also good for public approval of unions. Mm-hmm. The Gallup poll has tended to be the case that when there's a 
a large increase or when unemployment is high, your public approval for organized labor for unions is low. Interesting. It's not clear if that's going to happen again. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the problem for unions is that, you know, everyone's expecting there's going to be, I mean, there's already been a massive increase in unemployment, as we know. But over the next few months, a lot of economists are predicting a great depression levels of unemployment, mm-hmm. you know, something we haven't seen since the early 1930s how that's going to affect unions and how that's going to affect organized labor is really unclear. I mean, it's bound to be bad in many ways because, you know, you've seen entire industries that have been decimated. You know, if you look at a union like Unite here that represents, you know, primarily workers in the very large hotel chains, Mm -hmm. large food service companies, their entire industry it has been decimated. And that's true you know, in many other sectors too. If you look at a union like the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, it's a mixed picture. They represent, they're quite strong amongst food grocery, you know, particularly in more pro-union parts of the country or parts of the country where unions are stronger. So like in the West Coast or in the Northeast, uh, they represent tens of thousands of food retail workers at Safeway, Albertsons, at Kroger, at a Stop and Shop, at very large grocery chains. And they're hiring like crazy. Mm-hmm. They're hiring tens of thousands, at least temporarily. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen mm-hmm. to, to sales in the sector in two or three or you know, four months' time. But at the moment, you know, they've had a huge surge in you know, sales, online sales of people going to the stores. Mm-hmm. And so you know, they can barely keep up you know, in terms of hiring enough new people. You know, Walmart, of course, is non-union, famously you know, non-union and hostile to unions. But it, Walmart announced its intention to hire an additional 150,000 workers, Wow, a tenth of its U.S. workforce. Kroger, which is the second largest in terms of food retail in the, the United States, is also, you know, said it hired almost 40,000 additional workers over the last few weeks. So those sectors are growing tremendously, both non-union companies, but also unionized companies. But non-food retail, of course, has been decimated mm-hmm. by the lockdown. So it's a very mixed picture. Mm-hmm. In general, Bad economies and high unemployment are always bad for the labor movement, for the organized labor movement. But, you know, of course, this is a very different situation. And I don't mean to suggest for a moment that it will be the same as in the 1930s. But the last time where we had an enormous expansion of the labor movement in the United States was actually in the 30s and in the 40s, which was also a time of huge increase in unemployment. But what you had in the the 30s, I mean, just to draw a quick contrast, is, you know, first of all, obviously, you had the economic collapse of the Great Depression. Unemployment increased to the levels to like 25%, like it did during the Great Depression over a number of years. It wasn't, you know, virtually, you know, overnight Mm. or over a number of weeks or even just a couple of months like it has happened this time. I see. Really, obviously, it started with the stock market uh, crash in, in 1929, but you know, it continued in, in 1930, 31, 32, where obviously Hoover had no idea 
what to do in terms of improving the economy. You know, you got to the stage in 32 where a lot of people were saying, not just make FDR president, make him a dictator, you know, whatever it takes to get us out of this mess and this, this tragic situation. But it built up over a number of years. And, you know, second, of course, you know, what you had was the political realignment of the New Deal. And both of those things together opened up an opportunity for the labor movement. The labor movement actually at first was not able to take advantage of it. But you know, eventually with the split in the labor movement and the creation of the new industrial unions of the CIO, it was able to take advantage of the opportunity that you know, those two things, the depression and the political realignment of the New Deal, had you know presented but you know this time um i I mean it's foolish to predict you know i mean everything you even before the the pandemic everything was so fluid and unpredictable politically Mm -hmm. but now you know it would be crazy to predict you know what's going to happen over the next few months but you know depending um I mean, one could imagine and and say, I have no idea what's going to happen in the 2020 election more than anyone uh, else. But if you did have a a very significant political realignment in 2020, that too might might open up an opportunity for the the labor movement. I mean, I I think what a lot of academics, I mean, what I would say certainly and you know, some people, of course, in the union movement and, and maybe in the left in the United States don't like hearing this. But I think historically, the labor movement in the United States has always been a secondary institution. And what I mean by that is it doesn't have the power, uh, the influence to shape its own environment. It only has the ability to react, to take the opportunity given to it by larger uh, environmental changes. So just as you had the, the economic and the political environment changed very significantly in the 1930s, and the labor movement was able to take advantage of you know those changes, the opportunity given by those changes, mm-hmm. you could see something, you know, it's very foolish to predict. But I mean, we know that the pandemic is going to have a devastating impact on the economy already is for Mm. for many, many workers. But that's going to continue over the next several months. Of course, it could rebound very quickly in a year's time if there's an effective vaccine, if there's effective treatment, you know, if we we no longer have to uh, live under uh, social distancing and lockdown conditions, then the economy could rebound quite quickly. Mm -hmm. But if there is some sort of political realignment after the 2020 election, it might be the case that that presents an opportunity uh, for the labour movement, that the likes of which hasn't had for decades in, in the United States. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, it could, <laughs> it could go the opposite. <laughs> it could be just the election. opposite, right, yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, if we see, a, you know, I mean, Trump and you know the rise of right-wing populism, as we know, is not purely a U.S. phenomenon. Something we've seen in many countries in the world, in Brazil, in you know Russia, arguably in India, arguably in Turkey, in Hungary, in Poland, in mm. the Philippines, etc. So, and for the most part, this has been you know a, a very negative thing for unions in those countries because the type of 
right-wing populist, in some cases, of demagogues who have risen to power, generally speaking, have been quite hostile to unions. So, I mean, yes, I mean, you know, the politics could turn even uglier for the labor movement and, you know, for the kinds of workers that, you know, the, the U.S. labor movement is trying to organize, trying to protect. But, but I mean, as I say, having speculated about that for the last five or ten minutes, I, I, I would say again, <laughs> it's very foolish to speculate, you know, because uh, none of us has any idea. But as you, you mentioned also, even during the pandemic, we have actually seen an upsurge of labor activism and even uh, signs of new labor organizing. Now, of course, what, you know, one has to point out that a lot of activism we've seen is on the part of you know, essential workers who are on the front lines of the current pandemic. And you know, they've been taking action because they're being asked to risk their lives every day at work and mm-hmm. they're not being given adequate safety protections. So, I mean, certainly that uh, you know, applies to most of all to doctors, to nurses, to other frontline healthcare workers. And you know, we've all seen night after night, you know, we've read the stories, seen the pictures mm-hmm. of doctors and nurses and healthcare workers who have not been given sufficient personal protective equipment, PPE. You know, probably no one, you know, very few people knew what PPE referred to. Right, now we're all experts in it, right? Exactly, (laughs) now everyone knows, you know, and everyone knows about, you know, the appropriate masks, everyone knows about, you know, the gloves, about the sanitizing equipment, about the the need for deep cleaning, about, you know, the need for social distancing at work. But it's not just the healthcare workers, of course. We know that it's the grocery workers, Mm -hmm. it's the food processing workers, it's the warehouse workers, it's the delivery workers. Mm-hmm. The pharmacy workers, it's the uh, you know UPS and FedEx and postal service workers, and all of those people and many others too, have been asked to continue working at very great risk to themselves and to their family members, mm-hmm. uh, and often they're workers who prior to the crisis were considered to be unskilled, low-wage, disposable, you know, pick whatever label you want. But, you know, that's how they were viewed. And now we're viewing them as essential personnel that are keeping the country going, that are keeping people, you know, fed and alive. Mm -hmm. They're still not getting the safety protections and they're still not getting the employment protections. And so, you know, you've had actions on the part of, you know, Amazon warehouse workers or Whole Foods grocery workers or Instacart workers and other, you know, other delivery services. But it's over the most basic things. I mean, you know, basically we're talking about two or three different things. And, you know, the most important thing by far is the safety measures. Mm-hmm. The social distancing is the personal protective equipment, is the other measures that will protect people's lives as much as possible. I mean, you know, if you're going to continue working during the pandemic, you're never going to be entirely safe. You know, if you're working in a grocery store or working in a food processing plant. But there are things that can be taken to make you much safer. And, you know, so when we're talking about grocery workers, unionized companies have generally been better because, you know, they've been pushed to be better by unions than non-union companies. They're both taking action, you know, they're doing things like trying to enforce social distancing within the stores. They're Mm -hmm. installing the plexiglass protective 
guards between customers and cashiers, so-called sneeze guards. Mm-hmm. They're allowing workers you know, to wear gloves. Initially, they were very reluctant to allow workers to wear masks at work because they didn't want to scare off the customers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're now allowing that. Some of them are actually providing the masks and gloves, but a lot of them still aren't doing it or certainly are not doing enough of it. Mm. They're doing more in terms of cleaning and providing hand sanitizer and providing paid Breaks, you know, to allow workers to to wash hands and to sanitize their workstations, but they're not doing enough of that, and they're also not doing enough of you know terms of basic employment protections and you know things like hazard pay or appreciation pay. I mean, you know, these are still workers in many cases are on very low wages, mm-hmm. eleven or twelve bucks an hour. In many cases, have been given a two dollar an hour increase when they're still working under these tremendously hazardous and stressful conditions. But it's only a temporary thing. You know, they've only been given it for a few weeks and then it's renewed for another few weeks. I see. You know, this is in the grocery sector, largely, I'm, I'm talking about many of these things, where workers are actually considered employees for the most part. But then, you know, you have all of the gig employees mm-hmm. where they work for Amazon Flex or they work for Instacart or you know, some of the other delivery services who don't even have those basic protections because they're independent contractors, they're not employees. And so, you know, you've seen action amongst, say, Instacart and other workers during the pandemic to try and get very basic safety protections. We're also seeing on a daily basis, and you know, we're reading about these stories on a daily basis, read Washington Post and New York Times, but you know, I read all of the, the grocery trade journals as well. I see. Every day, workers are falling sick. Every day they're working. They're not just seeing dozens or hundreds of customers, but thousands in most cases and you know the single biggest thing that would help to protect them, the companies are actually taking relatively little action on, and that's maximum numbers uh, within the stores and proper social distancing within the stores. So the United Food and Commercial Workers Union in various parts of the country has been very active in trying to push for maximum occupancy of stores of one worker for every 10,000 square feet of retail space and a maximum of 50 per store at any one time. Some cities and even some states are now taking action on maximum occupancy. Mm. And some companies too are taking some action, but it's not nearly enough. They're basing their limits on the maximum occupancy figures for the stores, which the companies you know, themselves rarely reach. Oh, I see. They're never actually, or very rarely, at the maximum occupancy level. So even if they say that they're limiting numbers to 40% or 50%, 40% of maximum occupancy, in a very large store, that can still mean 400 people at one time. I see. There are more things happening in the unionized sector because you know, unions have pushed for these agreements with companies and they're working collaboratively with the companies where they have collective bargaining agreements. So they're hiring more security personnel to enforce social distancing within the stores. They have like physical marking on the floors of the stores. They're introducing things like one-way aisles 
you know, one-way traffic in the aisles. I mean, you know, individually, they're all small things, but collectively, they do make a difference and they make the, the working lives of grocery sales personnel less stressful. You know, they're still worried. They're still scared to death often coming to work, worrying they're going to get infected. They're going to infect their families. But, you know, there's so much that could be done to create a safer environment within the stores that many of the big companies, you know, particularly the big non-union companies currently are not doing. And as I said, I mean, that's only an indication of one sector. So you have like the delivery workers, you have, you know, the gig employees, you have the food processing workers. You know, Mike Pence was giving a speech uh, yesterday about food processing workers and how they have to continue with their jobs and how they're key, you know, workers in the country and key workers in the economy. But, you know, they're falling ill and, you know, in some cases dying. You know, there's not enough being done to protect these workers. And, you know, there are workers, you know, in many cases that have not been involved in labor actions before at these companies. But often it's over basic safety protections and basic employment protections, you know, things like paid sick leave, things like not taking disciplinary action over workers who are affected by the pandemic in a whole number of different ways, you know, maybe having to care for sick family members and so forth. Maybe they're over 65 themselves, maybe, you know, they have compromised immune systems themselves, and so they have to self-isolate, you know, for their own safety. So things like that, increased pay is not the most important thing. I mean, the safety measures, you know, in, in almost all of these industries, workers will tell you that the safety precautions are most important. Yeah. But the hazard pay and the appreciation pay is important because these are, in most cases, very low-wage workers. Mm-hmm. It's outrageous that, you know, they're being continued to ask to work, you know, as a considerable risk to themselves and to their families for 12 or $13 an hour. I mean, it, you know, it doesn't just, seem fair. No, no, it's appalling. And so, you know, they, they should be given, I noticed that there was a proposal, you know, to, to give $25,000 uh, to all essential workers during the duration. Uh, Senate Democrats have proposed this. I, see. Uh, I know Senator Sherrod Brown from Ohio, but a number of others too have been very outspoken on this. Or heaven forbid that you know, uh, essential workers die as a result of working on the job. But we know this is happening, you know, as a, the grocery sector with transportation workers, with bus drivers, there are stories all over. And of course, with healthcare workers, that a $50,000 payment be given to their families, that Sherrod Brown again has proposed. And so pay is not the most essential thing, but these are, for the most part, low-wage workers who certainly deserve a significant pay increase and not just an hourly pay increase, but significant hazard pay for putting their lives at risk, continuing to work so that those of us who have the luxury and who have the privilege of being able to work from home can continue to eat and continue to function. Yeah. You know, you could say that this is sort of light in the darkness. I mean, there are signs of this new labor movement and signs of new labor activism that is emerging. Some cases from the very sort of darkest points during the pandemic and during the lockdown and the impact it's having you know, on people's physical health, on their mental health, on their you know, financial well-being. But again, 
you know, it, it is so difficult to predict how this is going to play out, if it's going to lead to any sort of permanent, stable institution, you know, in terms of a new labor movement. I mean, you know, one could say that this could conceivably be a, a sort of complete game changer for grocery workers. I've wondered, yeah. Previously considered to be like, you know, among the most sort of disposable workers in their economy. And now, you know, are recognized as absolutely essential, you know, not just to, to the economy, but keeping people alive. I think it would be very difficult to go back to the old normal when you're talking about, you know, the really sort of essential way that these workers, you know, have played a so critical role during the pandemic. Certainly, of course, you know, one would hopefully say the same about nurses and about healthcare workers, again, many of whom are, are low paid, you have poor benefits, you know, often considered to be disposable, uh, low-paid healthcare workers. The cleaners. Cleaners within hospitals, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you couldn't imagine a more critical job than that at this current time. And again, you know, for the most part, you know, many non-union workers, many workers on, you know, extremely low pay, poor benefits, poor working conditions, you know, things like that, you know, really have to change. And I mean, you you had asked, I think earlier, or brought up the, the issue of like, well, what would happen if these key workers, you know, just refused to work, mm-hmm. you know, during the, the sort of pandemic, during the emergency? I mean, you know, we are seeing instances of that. But of course, it's very, very difficult for these workers because they recognize the role that, you know, the, the absolutely essential and often, you know, life-saving role that they're playing during the pandemic. Yeah. We all know that you know, doctors, nurses are, are almost walking off the job is something they, they very rarely do. Yeah. I mean, of course, we see strikes amongst nurses, but you know, even then, every precaution is taken to make sure you know, that emergency cases are all covered and that no one is going to die as a result of nurses taking action on the job. I see. But you've had cases in Detroit you know, yesterday you know, a number of nurses at one of the big hospitals walked off the job. Oh. But it was out of desperation. I mean, they didn't have the most basic safety equipment. And, you know, these are workers, nurses who are treating COVID-19 patients. So not only is their uh, risk of infection very high, but they're being exposed to very high levels of the virus. And so, you know, not only might they get this, but they might get it at such a high level that they're likely to face very serious health problems once they are infected. And so, as I say, they were very reluctant to take the action, but, you know, to them, it was, really was an issue of life and death. Right. They felt they had no choice. Yes, exactly. And we saw Detroit bus drivers walk off the job, mm. and you know, it was only for a few hours, and, you know, and it was to force the city to take action to provide basic safety equipment. Mm. And so, you know, certainly there are cases, and you know, hopefully, you know, it, 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 you know, it's beyond crazy that we're still having difficulty getting PPE, personal protective equipment, to frontline healthcare workers. But everyone, of course, is hoping that that situation will improve very quickly mm-hmm. in the weeks to come. But you know, certainly, we could see all sorts of more actions around that. You know, amongst different groups of workers. You know, whether they be grocery workers, food processing workers, delivery workers, postal service workers are experiencing you know, very high levels 
of stress and are very scared because they're being asked to work under conditions, again, where their likelihood of getting infected on the jobs is quite high. The same with you know, UPS or FedEx delivery drivers. Often they don't interact with the public in the same, quite the same way as grocery workers do. But nonetheless, you know, they're handling packages that have been handled by multiple uh, other people. They do have interaction with other people on the job. They don't all have access to the safety equipment, even functioning bathrooms. They don't have access to, in some cases, you know, for delivery workers, you know, they don't have access to bathrooms with soap, mm. a proper hand sanitizer. So, you know, there are a large number of workers who are being required to work through the pandemic who don't have access to basic safety equipment or not enough is being done to protect them on the job and you know more could be done and more must be done to protect them on the job generally speaking the unionized sector is better because the unions are forcing the large companies to take action on these sort of like you know life and death issues on the safety equipment mm-hmm. but also on the employment protections so i mean there are you know examples that stand out I know, you know one case or another in California, uh, UFCW Local 5, which represents about 20,000 or so grocery workers in Northern California, has signed you know, an agreement with Safeway that provides enhanced safety protections, also provides for better employment security and employment protections. But importantly, it covers not just the retail workers, but also the delivery workers. Mm who in this particular case, the delivery workers are also Safeway employees Mm -hmm. and they're also unionized. They're also represented by the UFCW. So, you know, they have an agreement that spells out what the safety measures have to be for grocery workers and also the different safety measures for delivery workers. And, you know, a a critical thing that, well, two related things I'll say that, and, you know, researchers and academics who work on health and safety issues have known this for years and years. You know, two things that for the most part, you know, whether we're talking about mining, construction, manufacturing, warehouses, sectors of the economy where typically there's a higher than average rate of injury and even fatality on the job, unionized workplaces are safer than non-union workplaces. And now we're learning that, you know, about grocery stores. Right. We're learning very quickly. But the second thing, which is equally, you know, if not even more important, is that when companies agree to safety measures or you know, unilaterally adopt safety policies and say, you know, we're going to do this in terms of limiting store numbers or giving paid breaks to wash hands and to sanitize workstations, whatever the measures might be, they're far more likely to be enforced in a union environment than they are in a non-union environment. So both the safety measures are better to begin with, and you know, I would say during the pandemic, the new safety measures are being negotiated in the unionized sector are for the most part better than the ones that are being adopted unilaterally by large non-union corporations. But second, they're more likely to be enforced. And that is absolutely critical when it comes to health and safety measures. You know, these big non-union companies, and I I certainly applaud them for taking safety measures and for offering paid sick leave 
you know, I think they need to do a lot more. You know, there's some better case practice models in the non-union sector, just as there, there are in the union sector. But when they adopt the policies, you know, it's absolutely critical to have workers who feel confident about speaking up if the policies are not being enforced, if they're not being adhered to. Yeah where you might even be able to file grievances about these issues, you know, if the company is not living up to what was agreed to. I mean, most of the time it doesn't come to that, you know, and, and say simply, you know, having a union stewards within the workplaces, you know, whether it be a grocery store or a food processing plant, a warehouse, whatever it might be, uh, means that, you know, the safety measures are, are more likely to be enforced. But the other thing that's happening, which is very important, because, you know, the companies, let say, by and large, are not doing enough. And you know, that's no great surprise, you know, not just in groceries, but in the warehouse sector, in the food processing sector, in the delivery sector, you know, in pharmacy, etc. The other thing that unions are doing is, you know, lobbying and putting pressure on state governments, on mayors, on governors. They're trying to achieve protections at the federal level but you know most of the action of course is happening at the city level and at the state level so they're getting governors and getting mayors and city councils to take action when it comes to things like reclassifying grocery workers as essential personnel which can mean that they get free childcare, or you know in some cases they might get a fast track to COVID-19 testing and access to to PPE and so, you know, in San Francisco and San Jose, just uh, yesterday enacted uh, measures giving greater entitlement to paid sick leave to workers in those cities. LA has taken some measures also, you know, in terms of those types of protections hmm. for paid sick leave for workers at large employees, you know, over 500 employees who were left out of the paid sick leave provision of the federal stimulus bill. Right. I have mentioned in you know some of the pieces I've written that a number of states, including uh, Maryland, including Michigan, including Minnesota and Vermont, have re- reclassified grocery workers as um, emergency personnel. Sometimes not the same way as first responders, so they don't get all of the same benefits that first responders do, but they do get access at a minimum in most cases to free childcare, but also some other benefits too. They're usually a result of union pressure. They're taking these measures. Right. No, that's very interesting. And I'm sure I would have questions for you for for all day, but I, I have to let you go. I wondered before I do so if there's anything that you would like to share with the listeners about how they could follow your work or learn more about unionizing or kind of keep abreast of these issues. I've written a number of op-eds in the last few weeks about the need for companies to offer greater protections, you know, particularly in the grocery sector. So you know, I, I write often for The Hill, which is a DC publication, you know, along with Roll Call and Politico. It's one of the three big sort of inside the beltway, you know, DC publications. And I, I write as an op-ed contributor and you know, have published a number of op-eds about what companies need to do and what state local governments need to do in order to protect grocery workers and delivery workers during the the current pandemic. There's a lot of good work that has been written on this. And whether people go to the AFL-CIO 
website and go to their their COVID-19 resources or, you know, to any number of other publications that have been writing, you know, doing really excellent work on this. I think, you know, it is just very important. I had never considered the very large number of groups who are all continuing to work and as they are all at a significant risk you know, whether it be annual food processing, whether it be farm workers, whether it be grocery store workers, delivery workers, and so on. Of course, of course, of course, the healthcare workers who are on the front lines. Right. But beyond that, there's actually very significant large groups of workers and you know, large groups of workers who frequently have like you know amongst the lowest pay, the worst conditions, mm-hmm. fewest protections of any workers in the American economy. And yet those are the people, you know, who are now keeping us alive and putting their own lives at risk. And so, you know, I would just encourage people to reach out, you know, to read any sort of quality publication, you know, about the conditions and about what's being done or what needs to be done in order to protect those groups of workers. I think that there's been a lot of great work that's been written on this, but again, I think we just all owe a tremendous debt of gratitude to any of the essential workers who are continuing to work during the pandemic. Well, John, thank you so much for coming on the show and for the work that you do. Oh, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. That's it, everybody. You've made it through another episode of Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work. During the pandemic, we'll be changing our format in honor of those who are quarantined or working on the front lines. We'll put out shorter shows on a daily or near daily basis early in the morning to start your day on a positive and interesting note. We'll be considering work-related issues relevant while COVID-19 is impacting the world. If you have a question or a comment or a message for our listeners, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us through the website, discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T, where you can also find other resources about working better together. Thank you for joining my quest to improve our workplaces, our work lives, and our lives in general. And thanks for listening. We look forward to returning to our old format when the world has returned to a more normal state. In the meantime, please hang in there, stay safe, and know that I care about you.